Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. After 52 episodes of interviews, today I'm going to try something I've never done before and create a solo episode. I'm going to list what I believe to be 15 of the biggest piano teaching mistakes I made before starting this podcast, which I've now corrected as a result of having conducted these interviews. Before I plunge into this list, I want to give this episode some context. If you don't care and want to just skip ahead to the list of mistakes, then fine. Skip ahead about a minute and a half. It will make me a little sad, but I'll get over it. Unlike many other people who aim to become public figures in the piano teaching world, I'm not a piano teaching specialist at all. Yes, I have a very large amount of students right now and have been teaching for about seven years, and I'm K-12 teacher certified, so I'm not a completely random person plucked off the street, but I don't have a degree in piano pedagogy or even piano performance. I don't have students winning major competitions. I've never been to a conference. I've never published in any journals, etc. In fact, before the pandemic, piano teaching was really on the side, and I just saw it as a way to supplement the income I received from my full-time position as resident music director for a theater outside Philadelphia. My intention for creating this podcast was because when the pandemic hit and my theater temporarily shut down, forcing me to make piano teaching my sole occupation, I wanted to get better at teaching piano through talking to some of the top people in the industry and invite anyone interested to eavesdrop on the conversation with the hopes that they could learn alongside me. So I thought this episode might be valuable to listeners who in some ways may have been like me a few years ago. I also reference which person or people on the podcast help correct which mistake, in case you want to learn more about anything I talk about today. This list is in no way comprehensive, and for purposes of keeping this concise, I'm not going to reference every single guest who's been on the podcast, although I could. These are just some of the ones that stick out. Although I tried to group related concepts together, these aren't in any particular order. I also want to acknowledge that some of these are subjective, and there might be some teachers who will disagree and say something like, no, that's not a mistake. The way you did it before was better. That's okay. Just my opinion. Here we go. Number one, I assume that rhythm issues and pauses were caused by problems with reading. I would often react to rhythmic inaccuracies by going to the sheet music and asking questions like, how many beats does this get? Of course, sometimes that's helpful, but very often the student just hasn't internalized what it really feels like to play with a steady pulse, or at least the type of pulse required by the piece in question. In these instances, the solution is usually to get off the piano and do movement activities that allow the student to feel the beat in their whole body, so then they can translate it back to the comparatively finer motions of piano playing. I spoke about this at length with Benjamin Steinhardt and also a little bit with Orly Shaham, and I spoke more broadly about the problem with an over-reliance on note reading with Mario Ajero. Number two, I taught note reading by note recognition and mnemonics as opposed to landmarks and intervals. Listen to my interview with Marvin Blickenstaff for more information about this. One thing Marvin said that I heard in my research for the interview, even if he didn't say this directly on All Keyed Up, is when you're reading a magazine, you don't read one letter at a time. You read words and group these words into sentences. Same thing with reading music. Reading an excerpt of music by identifying distinct pitches is, first of all, extremely time-consuming if you're going to really use mnemonics for every note. But more importantly, it teaches you to treat each note as a discrete unit and doesn't show any recognition of the horizontal aspect of music or the relationship between notes. Number three. 
I treated improvisation basically the way I treated stickers, sort of as a fun reward after the more quote-unquote rigorous parts of the lesson were done, and it wasn't really tied to the rest of my teaching. What I learned from my interviews with Brenda Earl Stokes, Gerald Simon, and Daryl Harper is that you can use improvisation to teach basically anything, and in doing so, you allow the students to truly experience a musical concept. Now, improvisation is a core component of almost every lesson I teach, and it's part of the way I teach basically everything except for, I guess, the basics of notation. I even use it to teach new repertoire pieces. I love taking musical features from the student's repertoire and use that as a springboard for an improvisation activity. It helps them really get where their composer is coming from more vividly than if they just did nothing but play the sheet music as written. Number four. Another element of piano teaching that I put in its own block and didn't integrate it enough into the rest of the lesson was using works by composers who were not white men. I usually use these as standalone pieces and didn't think through wrapping them up in the broader curriculum. I kind of just use them for the sake of using them. It's like a TV show that throws in a character from a marginalized background in one episode that doesn't really have anything to do with the plot and is just there to score diversity points. I talked about this a lot with Leah Claiborne and a little bit with Artina McCain, but we would never teach a piece by Beethoven without carefully thinking through how using this piece fits into our broader curriculum and without having some kind of background knowledge about who Beethoven was so we could come to our students with an informed perspective. There's no reason why we shouldn't expect the same when using not as well-known pieces by composers from diverse backgrounds. Both of the interviews I just mentioned are very informative, but Leah Claiborne really drove that point home. And I loved in the interview how many pieces she mentioned by black composers where she went through them and talked about their pedagogical benefits in detail and talked about how they might fit into a broader curriculum and how you could thoughtfully pair these pieces with more standard classical works. Another great resource I'd recommend to teachers who want to avoid making the same mistake I did is Jane McGraw's new book, Piano Literature for Teaching and Performance. Number five, I too quickly defaulted to telling students to relax as the catch-all way to encourage healthy technique. In actuality, you can't really play piano in a state of full relaxation. Yes, you don't want excess tension, but you also don't want to run the opposite direction and have the type of slack and disengagement that's characteristic of full relaxation. I spoke about this in great detail with Ariel Weiss and Edna Galansky. One thing Edna Galansky said that stuck in my head, and I'm paraphrasing here, is you're relaxed when you go to sleep, not when you play the piano. Number six, when my students had poor posture, my knee-jerk reaction was always to tell them to sit up straight. This phrase was beaten out of me by Arielle Weiss, an Alexander Technique teacher who works at the Curtis Institute of Music. She explained to me that our spines are curvy, and sitting up straight can cause an overextension of the thoracic spine or upper back and almost contort the spine into an unnatural, awkward position. It doesn't achieve the type of buoyant balance that we want. Instead, she talked to me about encouraging students to feel the balance of their head over their seat. We talked about this much more in the episode if you'd like more of a deep dive on the topic. Number seven, I never talked about rotation. For whatever reason, this is just not a topic that really was ever brought up to me in the piano lessons I had growing up, even if I 
picked up on it somewhat instinctually, I guess. I talked about this a lot with Edna Galansky and also a bit with Marvin Blickenstaff and the creators of Piano Safari, Julie Haig, and Catherine Fisher. As a result of this podcast, Marvin was amazingly generous enough to invite my fiance and me to dinner. And at the dinner, he told me that he thinks rotation is one of the most undertaught elements of piano instruction. In my opinion, rotation is the best way to avoid some of the excess tension that comes from stretching and twisting. And it's a fantastic way to encourage alignment and a great way to teach articulation. My technique was definitely way too much focused on the up and down motion of fingers. Number eight, I assume that every child, no matter what they said, would find contemporary popular music more fun to work on than classical music. And if they told me that they would prefer classical music, they were lying to themselves. I had this stereotype in my mind of lessons where students have a serious disciplinarian teacher force them to play Clementi and the students would get bored and think of the lessons as a chore. So I sprinted in the opposite direction and forced everyone to do pop. And to be fair, I will say that for many of my students that ended up working to my favor. And I do think that pop music is a great teaching tool. And I've spoken about the pedagogical advantages of using pop music in your studio in many instances on the podcast, especially with Chrissy Ricker and Tony Parla Piano. However, pop songs sometimes don't sound as idiomatic for piano as the classical pieces do, making them in some cases less rewarding. And furthermore, there are a lot of kids that really like to play classical pieces, and there are a lot of kids that don't like pop. A good teacher can make any music exciting and can teach to the student. I talked about this a bit with Tim Topham. Number nine. This is related to number eight. I was too all-accepting of pop music. I wasn't picky enough about which pieces could translate to the piano and which couldn't. A lot of pop music contains very fast, repeated notes in heavily syncopated rhythms, which sound fine for singing or talk singing, but are very unsatisfying when adapted to the piano. Of course, this is solved when the student sings the melody and plays chord patterns on the piano as opposed to playing the melody on the piano. But on that front, a lot of pop songs are very heavily produced with a lot of electronic sound effects and can sound wimpy and kind of bare when the vocal line is supported by piano only. So you have to make sure to find pop songs that really work for piano as opposed to doing what I did and basically just letting the student request whatever they want or looking at the billboard top hits. I talked about this a little with Tony Parlapiano. Number 10, I charged lower than the other piano teachers around me. Often, I learn about piano teaching not just through my interviews themselves, but also in researching my guests. I was interviewing Nicola Canton, and in listening to her podcast and videos, I heard her speak about this, and I was like, oops. By purposefully charging lower than everybody else, you end up, with some exceptions, mostly attracting either parents who are not as reliable about payment and more commonly, parents who don't care and didn't need the discount. Plus, you overall drag down our industry. I absolutely believe in scholarships for families in need and offer them to several students myself, and I've discussed ways of implementing scholarships in my episodes with Leah Claiborne and Ashley Frith, but there's no need to, across the board, make a point to charge cheaper than all of the other piano teachers in your area do. Number 11. I didn't automate my payments. I spoke about this topic with Takenya Battle and touched on it with Clinton Pratt, although Clinton's approach is even more automated and 
dare I say cutthroat than mine. I used to let families pay however they wanted, and I used to spend hours and hours up all night juggling many different forms of payment and keeping track of who's already paid, making sure they paid the correct amount, who still owes, sending notifications to everyone who still owes, and then checking again a few days later to be sure everyone I sent a notification to ended up paying. I bet you're very jealous. I often feel abject horror thinking about what my life would be like if I still did that with my current studio of almost 70 students. Now I just have the amount auto-deduct from everyone's credit card, and it has made my life incalculably easier. I teach for my theater, and the theater does the credit card deduction for me, but for people who run their studios independently, I recommend Fonz and my music staff. Number 12. I want to move on to teaching neurodivergent students. I really liked the interview I did with Selena Pistoresi on this topic. She taught me so many things, but the tidbit that I found perhaps the most helpful is to not discourage stimming. I used to see stimming as a sign of being distracted, and I would try to get my students to stop stimming. I didn't realize until speaking with her that in many cases, stimming is a healthy, adaptive behavior and a way in some cases to react to overstimulation, and you can just keep on teaching the same way you otherwise would when a student starts stimming. Number 13, I used way too many abstractions when working with students with special needs. This is something that I learned from Scott Price, who was talking to me about how for, in the case of that interview, students with autism, it often helps to use as literal language as possible. For instance, take a seemingly innocuous command like, go to measure 50. That's a somewhat abstract use of the word go. Normally, children hear that phrase in a context like go to the grocery store where you physically change locations. So you might be better served by saying something like play the music at measure 50. And there are so many little things like that, which can quickly create unnecessary confusion for all students, but especially students with autism. Number 14, my lessons had way too much of me talking and not enough of the student playing. I spoke about this with Tim Topham, but rambling to students is so easy. Tim told me about a session he had with Leela Viss where they demonstrated how a whole lesson could work without any talking. Of course, I've never gone to that level, and there are, of course, times when you need to explain concepts to students. But ultimately, I'm very inspired by this quote by Confucius, which I believe I first heard on an episode of the TopCast. Tell me, I forget. Show me, I remember. Involve me, I understand. Number 15, I didn't communicate with parents enough about how their children were doing. My main musical training was as a composer, and I always noticed that nine times out of ten, no one had an interest in hearing me talk about the theory behind my compositions. They just wanted to hear the piece. I assume the same was true with piano teaching, in that parents would enjoy hearing their children play, but couldn't care less about what I was actually doing in the lessons. So I never updated parents on student progress unless they asked or if there was a major issue. There's two problems with that type of thinking. First, of course, I was painting parents with too broad of a brushstroke. Many parents do care about what's going on in the lessons. But also, I've come to find that even the parents who aren't as interested in the nuts and bolts of piano pedagogy appreciate a sign that I know what I'm doing and that their children is being taught in an approach that's informed and thoughtful, regardless of whether they skim my progress reports or scrutinize each sentence. Also, writing out progress reports and emails with updates on how lessons are going is helpful for me as well, since it reminds me what my long-term plans and goals are with each student. I spoke about the need for parent communication on my interview with Shelley Davis. 
So overall, what I think this ultimately amounts to, which could be seen as perhaps my biggest mistake of all, is I didn't really take an interest or active effort in trying to get better at teaching piano, and I ignored all of the resources out there which would have helped me. As I mentioned at the top, piano teaching was always on the side as a way to supplement my music directing income, so I didn't focus on it very much. I'm so grateful to have been able to speak to so many amazing people, and I love to think about how all 52 of the people I've interviewed are, to an extent, floating around in my mind in every lesson I teach. And I hope everyone who's listened to the podcast has had their teaching influence by hearing my guests as well. And furthermore, I hope everyone listening to the podcast also takes advantage of all the resources out there, not just my podcast, but also all the other Piano Teacher podcasts. I'm pretty sure I regularly listen to all of them, and I've interviewed many of the hosts of them on my show, and I have enormous respect for them and have learned a lot from listening to their podcasts as well. Now, in the same way that my piano teaching has gotten better through hearing from others, I would love to make similar improvements with this podcast. I'm always thinking about what I could do better and who would be great as a guest and what would be an interesting topic to create an interview about. So if you have any feedback or suggestions for me about the podcast, feel free to reach out to me through the contact page at www.bencapolo.com. Thanks again for listening. Hope this was helpful.